You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. I don't want to offend you with my skepticism. You're not going to. Because I like you, man. I like you. I don't want to be a fucking dick, but... You're not a dick. I'm just saying, what's going to fucking change, right? Maybe nothing. Probably nothing. But you know what will change if I don't do it? Definitely nothing. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 7. Make Peace or Die. All right, so we've got our side-by-side ATV all geared up, ready for an adventure. David Richvalski is behind the wheel wearing a mad bomber hat. Got our goggles on, shitloads of clothes. It's what, about five degrees outside? Something like that. All right, and we are ready to rock. Dude, this thing's gonna fucking haul ass. There's one third squad Marine we couldn't reach by road. I mean, it was possible, but there just wasn't time to squeeze an extra 5,000 miles into the itinerary. So I hopped on a flight to Alaska to meet David Richvalski, who lives about an hour northeast of Anchorage. Check, check, check. Why aren't you showing all my channels anymore? Tommy had to go home for a few days, so I'm flying solo on this one. Getting familiar with the recorder while wearing mittens the size of boxing gloves is super fun. You ready for me to go? Yeah. I'm going to spin the tires to see if I can see if the front's turning too. Okay. We're in four-wheel drive. <laughs> Richvalski hits the gas, and soon we're ripping down the Kinnick River at 50 miles per hour, looking like a couple of Mad Max characters. This is so fucking cool. My hands freeze into claws whenever I have to take off my mittens to adjust the recorder. But I'm having such a good time, I barely notice. Whee! Being out here reminds me of Montana, where I live. Oh, man. Thankfully, the sun is starting to warm the air when we pull up to our destination, the Kinnick Glacier, a massive sheet of ice that spills down from the Chugash Mountains just 10 miles upriver from Rajvalski's house. Should we jump out and walk around? That's exactly what I was thinking. 
We park on a hill where we can see the 400-foot calving face where the icebergs break off. Wow. I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like this before. Man, I managed to give a fucking world traveler reporter guy a fucking first time, huh? Yep. Damn. Of course, because this is America, there's a guy doing donuts on the frozen lake in a vintage pickup. And another guy shooting a flamethrower next to an iceberg that looks like a giant hunk of frozen Windex. The carbon orgy clashes a bit with the pristine surroundings. But Richvalsky digs all of it. Living the dream, Richvalsky. It's pretty good, man. Pretty good. The combination of remote wilderness and Arctic redneck culture is what made him fall head over heels for Alaska. I feel like it's one of the last free states, honestly. I just have freedom. I can do what I want. I can come out here, get out here by myself and cruise around and hang out, man. It's a great place to decompress after work. Richvalski grew up in most people's idea of paradise, Hawaii. But he had no desire to go back there when he got out of the Corps in 2014. He hit the road for Alaska with the promise of a job and never looked back. It was around the same time that I moved to Montana from the East Coast for some of the same reasons. It took Richvalski two weeks to drive all the way from Camp Pendleton up through Canada to Anchorage, his first landing spot. Now he lives in a secluded subdivision near a town called Palmer. He makes his living as a plumber working on big commercial projects all over the state. His hobbies are pretty full-time, too. Like me, he's a serious hunter. And in Alaska, that means lots of scouting and planning for bear and moose hunts. With so much going on, Richvalski tells me Afghanistan isn't something he thinks about much anymore. Almost never. Almost never do. On a different portion of my life, moved on. So when you do think about Afghanistan, what do you think about? Ah, the funny stuff. Sad stuff sometimes. I don't know, excitement, you know. Adventure. Is there anything that you miss about it? Yeah, it's simple, man. It's a simple place to be. You know, you get up, you walk around. You get shot at. You walk back, you sleep, do it all over again. A lot of people, I think, would be shocked to hear that being at war, even in a very dangerous place, in certain ways is kind of easy. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely easy, you know? I mean, now I got, you know, bills. Got to go to work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it never felt like work to me. As we're talking, a herd of moose trots down the riverbed. We're a long way from Hawaii, and we're even farther from Sangin, where we first met a decade ago. All right, so the first thing I need you to do is just introduce yourself in a kind of outside voice. Well, just in your regular voice. <laughs> All right, um, I'm Lance Corporal David Schwalski, and I'm 19 years old, and I'm from Wailua, Hawaii. Great, perfect. Okay, so number one, why did you join the Marine Corps? I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to get off the island. Back then, he was a lanky teenager, and I'm not sure he could have grown a beard if he'd tried. Now he's six feet tall and 230 pounds, with a righteous beard and thick forearms covered in tattoos. His hair is still buzzed short, but that's about the only thing that hasn't changed since Sangin. Sitting in the ATV by the river, I ask him why he was so eager to get out of Hawaii all those years ago. 
I think it's just hot, small. You can only go to the beach so often. Surfing gets quite repetitive. I was uh, ready to go, you know, independent, young man looking for adventure. He tells me Hawaii was a great place to grow up, and he had a happy childhood. He just never felt like he fit in there. The military promised a way off the island. But like several of the other members of 3rd Squad, Richvalski was only 17 when he started thinking about enlisting. So he needed his parents' permission. I told my dad, he goes, okay, we gotta go talk to some recruiters, right? So uh, we go to town and there's like uh, an army and a Marine Corps recruiters right next to each other, like sharing a wall office. He didn't have a clear idea of what he wanted to do in the military, let alone which branch he wanted to join. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. But first impressions settled things. The Army recruiters were literally fat and nasty. <laughs> and the, the Marine Corps recruiter looked like a guy in the fucking military. And it, I hate to say that because the Marine Corps is all about appearance and the uniform. And I always hated that about the Marine Corps. But that was the turning point where we were like, no, I don't want to be in the fucking Army. You're not going to hurt my feelings, don't worry. I was in the National Guard, a reserve component of the U.S. Army. We get made fun of by pretty much everyone, including the regular Army. Anyway, it was 2009 when Richvalski and his dad visited the recruiter. And the war in Afghanistan was barely on the radar for the average American. But we'd just come through the most brutal years of the Iraq War. What was your awareness of... of what kind of fighting was going on at the time, if you can remember, when you were in high school? I mean, I always knew there was fighting. You see the shit on the news, you know? But, I mean, I wasn't... Uh, I didn't come from a family that's in the military, you know? I didn't I didn't know anybody, you know, that was in the military. Mm-hmm. So, my understanding of what it actually was, you know, was uh, zero. But I I knew for a fact that there was a war, if that makes sense. Did you know where that war was? Yes, in the Middle East. I could, I could narrow it down to the Middle East at that time. <laughs> Did you have a sense of what the war was about or how it was going or anything like that? No, I, I, I don't think I have a sense now. I mean, when I tell you right now that I legitimately kind of still don't understand, I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> No, I... <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do yeah. know. Richvalski's dad, who's also named David, supported his son's decision to join the Marines. They signed the paperwork together, and as soon as high school was over, Richvalski shipped out for boot camp at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Yeah, that's funny. It's my, my, my first thought was, oh my God, look at all these white people. <laughs> I just went to a high school that didn't have very many white people. Your your school is mostly what? Uh, a lot of Filipino, a lot of uh, Asian, uh, you know, uh, Polynesian. So suddenly you were in a group of people who looked like you for the first time. Yes. For a lot of recruits, the shock of the first few days of boot camp is utterly terrifying. Some of them literally piss their pants. But not Rich Volsky. I kind of thought it was funny. Everybody's yelling and... You know, everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And I don't know, it's kind of just taking her all in. Were you intimidated at all? You know, no, I really wasn't. 
I knew. I knew what it was going to be like. So you kind of knew it was theater a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. After 13 weeks of boot camp, Richvalski went about an hour up the road to Camp Pendleton for infantry school, where he learned how to be what the Marines call an O331, a machine gunner. Then it was a short ride to his new unit, Weapons Platoon, Blackfoot Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. He barely had time to settle in before he shipped out to Afghanistan. In about 10 months, he'd gone from surfing in Hawaii to schlepping an M240 Bravo machine gun in Sangin. Here he is again, back at patrol base fires. I live in a fucking mud hut. It's just three feet thick walls of mud. Right now, it's actually pretty dirty, just because I've been disgusting and not cleaned it. And uh, I got fleas because of the fucking chickens that run around. (laughs) At just 19 years old, Richvalski was the youngest guy in third squad. He joined the Marines looking for adventure, and he definitely found it. But by the time I arrived, four months into the deployment, the novelty had worn off. I always like doing my job when I'm shooting, because that makes carrying the 240 around not just seem like a giant piece of metal that's pulling me into the air slowly. But, uh, like, getting shot, it's, it's, not, it's not fun. It's, it's fun when you're shooting. You know, sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail. It's real fun when you're the hammer. But is it the kind of fun that you want to keep having for a long time? Um, no, it's, it's the kind of fun where it's like, it's like you get really wasted one night and you do a bunch of stupid shit and it's fun to talk about. (laughs) But you don't want to do it for the rest of your life. No, definitely had way too many close calls to want to do that for the rest of my life. Okay. You can only dodge bullets for so long. (laughs) Richvalski managed to dodge bullets for his entire deployment. But the bullets were only one of the threats in Sangin. Describe, like, one of the, the scariest or toughest things that you've had to deal with out here in as much detail as you can. Um, Something that really sticks out in your mind that you think about, kind of. I like, fucked me up? Yeah. Probably when I got blown up. That, that got me pretty good. Richvalski was one of the 17 who got injured on June 12th. The blast left him with a slight stutter, and with permanent brain damage. So when he tells me he doesn't think about Afghanistan much anymore, there's a caveat. My whole memory of all of this is very fuzzy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, uh, and it's hard for me to put it in chronological order. Richvalski's memory is all scrambled from the explosion. When I try to drill down into specifics, it goes something like this. So just yeah. tell me what your first impression of Afghanistan was. That was brown, sandy. He's talking about Camp Leatherneck, the huge logistics base in the middle of the Helmand Desert where they stopped over on their way to Sangin. Hot? I don't particularly remember hot too much when we first got there. Well, it was probably the perfect time of year. It was like March, right? Spring. You don't remember. You tell me, <laughs> yeah. man. It's not like his memories got erased. They're just out of order and smashed together. I think I remember uh, somebody got their foot blown in half. It was Captain Frank. Is that right? He lost his, half his foot. But, but was that right in the beginning? No. Has anybody else talked about that? 
I forget which. I think is Kat- it the foot thing though, or or am or am I wrong? Rychwalski's memory troubles stem from a traumatic brain injury, or TBI. It's a catch-all diagnosis that includes everything from concussions to open head wounds. Rychwalski had both, and he's still dealing with the effects a decade later. But, uh... I had a thought. It's gone. It's gone. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. TBI's a bitch, man. Yeah. You know what's really funny about this whole thing? What? Is... I feel like unless you saw me there, you wouldn't even believe that I did it because I don't remember all of this bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Because you're asking me questions, I go, God, I do not know. (laughs) You know? Good thing I did see him there. And I've got photos and audio to prove it. We'll be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I stayed with Richvalski for a few days and got to meet his wife, Samantha, and all of his pets. Who's this? This is Mouse. Tell me about Mouse. Oh, he's oh. a vicious little bastard. Yeah, you know. You don't like that guy. You keep an eye on him, okay? Mouse is an American Eskimo dog. He looks like an overgrown cotton ball with fangs. Barely bigger than the cat, Mrs. Claus. Wichvalski also has a big, lazy Bernese mountain dog named Pixie. Actually, they're polar opposites. This one's sweet. 
nothing but love. And then the other one's very skeptical of everything. Including yeah. journalists who show up with big microphones and headphones. Especially journalists. I got them trained, you know, journalists, uh, lawyers, auditors, politicians. That's who we have them bite, you know. Mouse's training well, has been highly effective. Yeah, Ouch! Hey! No. That one was a straight-up ambush. Yeah. I keep an eye on Mouse while Rich Volsky shows me around the home he's building. I guess you would call this, what, open concept where the living rooms and the kitchens in the same spot? It's a Quonset hut, a prefab steel shell in the shape of a giant upside-down U, similar to the ones cranked out by the tens of thousands to house American troops during World War II. Quonset huts are quintessential Alaska. Durable, no-frills shelters for the kinds of frontier characters you find in Jack London stories. But this one would fit better in the pages of Martha Stewart Living. The three-bedroom design has heated floors, an entire wall of windows looking out on the mountains, and a deluxe kitchen for Samantha. We got the old lady a nice big Viking range because she does love to cook, you know. Richvalski's putting the finishing touches on the interior now. He's one of those guys who can do pretty much anything that involves tools. And you did this all yourself. Yes. Yeah, with, uh, I mean, obviously the help of some of my good friends and co-workers and lots of cases of beer, lots of barbecues. Close it's been two years since a big group of his friends helped put up the Quonset frame. And now the end is finally in sight. Are you ready to be done? Absolutely. Like last year. <laughs> the new house doesn't have much furniture yet. So when it's time to sit down and talk, we walk over to the one-room cabin that was on the property when Richvalski first bought it. It's about as close to an ideal mountain man hideout as you could imagine. Unfinished lumber walls, a cast iron stove, a bear skull on the kitchen table, and a double-barrel shotgun hanging by the front door. Richvalski might have stayed in this place forever if he'd never met Samantha. He pulls down a bottle of whiskey from the top of the refrigerator and grabs a couple of glasses. Then he warns me. I'm not going to remember shit in any kind of real order. And it's going to be frustrating for you. Okay, so then what's probably necessary is to figure out how you remember things. Like, right. what? how does your memory work? I can get uh, specific moments. And uh, if somebody else is talking about it, you know, I can go, oh, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I remember that clear as fucking day. You know what I mean? But it's uh, also it's almost got to be planted or, or dug up, if that makes sense. We decide to dig up some of those memories together, which means we have to go back to Sangin. As a member of Weapons Platoon, Richvalski was technically an attachment to Third Squad, not one of its original members. As the machine gunner, his weapon was critical whenever the squad got into a firefight. I was normally towards the front of the patrol, so that when the the sweeper and uh, the spotter, right term there, yeah, the sweeper and the spotter would poke through a tree line, you know, and if they got shot, I was normally towards the front, so I could pop up there real quick and uh, start laying suppression down. The only time it wasn't effective is if it came from the rear. And then that's where your automatic rifleman... Yeah, Moody was Moody, Moody was Moody was fucking handling that portion. And he carried a slightly, well, a lighter machine gun. Right. 
the saw. Yep. So while Moody took care of the rear with his saw, the M249 squad automatic weapon, Richvalski was at the front with his M240 Bravo, a nearly four-foot-long belt-fed beast. The gun and ammo weighed around 65 pounds. It was a lot to be hauling around in the Afghan heat, but it was worth it. The first thing I do is uh, I make noise, even if I'm just flying shit in the wrong direction, you know, entirely. I'm uh, I'm making noise. I'm basically allowing the rest of the guys to move by keeping the enemy's head down. Most of the guys in the squad carried M4 carbines, semi-automatic rifles that fire a small, high-velocity round that's barely bigger than 22 rounds used for hunting squirrels. If you've ever seen a picture of an AR-15, then you know what an M4 looks like. They're lightweight and easy to shoot quickly and accurately, but they lack the intimidation factor of machine guns like the 240 and the 50 cal, which fires a round big enough to take out a truck engine. So tell me, if you were on the other side of that, why would that be intimidating to you? I guess the only way to put it would be, you know, a 22 long rifle will kill you, but a 50 cal makes you feel like you'll be more dead. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll make you, it'll make you more dead. That's the psychological effect. It gotta be. Yeah. So do you remember the first time that you fired your M240 Bravo in a firefight? Yeah. I was shooting at a building. What'd it feel like? It's just a great, great feeling to just uh, let her rip, man. I always loved, I always loved shooting machine guns. I mean, even in training, it was a, uh, it was great. So did, did you get to fire your machine gun a lot after the fighting season started? There's a lot of shooting. It's what you wanted to do, right? Absolutely. I guess the shooting is exactly what I wanted to do, and the, the blowing up is not what I wanted to do. And that was the unavoidable part. So tell me about that. Tell me about when that happened. It was shortly after the 9th. But it feels like, like when I when I think about it, it feels like we had just got back in from picking up O'Brien. In my memory, it feels like it was those those two days between the ninth and the twelfth just don't exist. the The unimportant part just gets gone, <laughs> if that makes sense. It was June 12, 2011, the day Joshua McDaniels died and 16 other Marines got wounded in a series of IED blasts. Richvalski got knocked to the ground by the explosion that hit McDaniels. Then he got hit again moments later by a secondary blast that knocked him unconscious. The pockmarks from shrapnel and debris were still visible on his face when he told me about it back in Sangin. When I came to, I was just laying face down in the sand. It's like in a puddle of blood. And uh, Shear, Lance Corporal Shear, rolled me over and he goes, Hey man, you got all your limbs, you got all your legs, I don't know how you did it. He's like, you're going to be okay? And I was like, what? Because like, I, I, I had a severe concussion. Um, like I just got knocked straight retarded. And then uh, he started dragging me out. In his cabin 10 years later, I asked Rich Volsky what he still remembers about that day. I remember when I heard the first explosion, uh, trying to, remember the, I heard the first explosion, and then there was, 
like just the dust, you know, and then just like kind of silence, kind of put my dick in the dirt, you know, and, uh, just quiet. And I'm going, fuck, you know? And then I, I remember hearing McDaniels screaming and, uh, that was like, holy fuck, man, this is bad. So I scoot up that direction best I can. And, uh, I get up there and I see McDaniels and I look at him. I go, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I can't believe that uh, he can make that much noise with how small he is. He was essentially blown in, in half. Yeah. He was, I remember him making, uh, an insane amount of noise for, for how much of him was left. And I thought that was crazy. So I was talking to him, but it was, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, I got to him first or if Lopez got to him first, but I remember Lopez being there. He's talking about Jeffrey Lopez, one of third squad's riflemen. And this is where it gets real fuzzy. Like, I'm not sure about a lot of this, (laughs) you know what I mean? But I remember Lopez being there in that moments before we blow up again. Right. And I think what happened next was well i mean i know what happened next the ied fucking went off when elliot hit it because he was coming running up from the rear towards us and stepped on another ied the route that i took to mcdaniels just happened to be better than the route that elliot took to mcdaniels cody elliot supervised all the platoon's machine gunners including rich volsky he floated between squads and happened to be out with third squad that day I can remember looking at him as it, as he ran up to me and blew up. I can, I can see it in my mind. You know what I mean? That's one of those ones that's burned into me. You know, it's just like, it's just like looking at McDaniels. That one's burned into me too. The explosion from Elliot's IED erupted in a cone shape, widening with intensifying force as it moved upward from the ground. Fortunately for Richvalski and Lopez, they were crouched down low when it went off. I think if I was standing, I probably would have fucking died or something. I don't know. Or it probably would have been incredibly worse than it was. Worse for Richvalski, that is. It was plenty bad for Elliot. He lost his left leg and took shrapnel all over his body and face. Parts of Elliot's gear and bones slammed into Richvalski. Like, uh, you know, your, your temple's got a little hole. So a little, a little piece of shrapnel went in at like a, a upward angle and scooted in the hole in like the perfect way to like not kill me, pretty much. But if it went straight in, I mean, I would have been dead. Oh, wow. It was inside your skull. Yes. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Richvalski has a shadow box on the cabin wall with his camo name tape, his dog tags, his purple heart metal, and a little plastic tube with that piece of shrapnel inside of it. It was removed by a field trauma surgeon at Camp Leatherneck, where he got medevaced along with some of the other serious casualties from that day. It was actually kind of cool because I'm fucking rolling in there and uh, it was like a reunion. And we're fucking coming in on the gurney and it's like, what's up, man? Like, yeah, hey, you know, I know everybody in the ER, you know what I mean? High fives all around. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I remember the nurses got rid of the little fucking separator sheets because we're all yelling back and forth to each other talking. Richvalski thinks he had two surgeries, but he can't remember for sure. His condition was serious enough that he was laid up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. 
Here we are again back at patrol base fires not long after the incident. And what was the recovery like? It really wasn't that bad. I mean, it didn't really hurt until like the next day. Yeah. Because I was, I was just so confused and out of it from the concussion that uh, it was kind of just a daze the whole time in the ER and like in the extended care wards and stuff. I, I didn't really start like getting my memory back or anything like that until like a week later. Richvalski's shrapnel wound healed quickly enough, but his memory would never be the same. At the time, that was the least of his concerns. He was desperate to get back to the squad even if he had doubts about the bigger mission. Tell me about how you wanted to get out of the hospital and come back. Like, you probably could have gone home if you cried a little bit and told him that's what you wanted to do. I ended up coming back, like, not, not because I wanted to fight anymore. Well, yeah, I wanted to fight anymore because I had kind of a serious problem with the Taliban, <laughs> you know? But uh, I had some revenge to get with them, but it's really not... It's really not about that. I came back because of these guys, the guys that I'm out here with. <laughs> like, to, this really isn't this really isn't my fight. It's not really America's fight either. We're kind of just here. So, I mean, it's not for that reason. It's only because I still got boys out here that I wanted to come back. Two weeks in the hospital was long enough for Richvalski to feel like he was letting the squad down. Now he tells me he still feels bad about being away. One thing that I found out afterwards that uh, kind of really made me sad. Oh, man. is that I uh, put uh, Moody in a spot where he had to uh, carry the machine gun. Yep. <laughs> that was my responsibility, not his. So I had to get back. Richvalski's memories may be out of order and fuzzy around the edges. But dates and place names don't matter much in the end. It was the people who mattered back in Sangin, the PB Fires Marines, especially the guys in the squad. And it's the people who matter to Richvalski all these years later, too. He throws another log into the wood stove, and then he tells me about Dutch. Yeah, glasses. It's a guy who can do smart stuff. <laughs> that happens a lot in the Marine Corps. Guys who have glasses get tasked with smart people stuff? Yes. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He was a sweet human being, man. The word I would put on him was sweet. Loving, caring. Not what you would expect. Of a Marine or, or what? Of a Marine where we were. Good human being. A lot better than me. Do you remember the day that he got killed? Yes. What do you remember about that day? Remember the fucking explosion? I remember the crack. I remember the dust. 
By that day, September 15, 2011, Richvalsky had already survived one near-death experience. Instinct took over. I had one of them gut feelings, man. Afterwards, he had already blown up at this point. But that's one of the few times I remember having a uh, intense gut feeling that said, do not fucking move. And I didn't. War is usually about force, not choices. Marines are told where to go and what to do when they get there. Sometimes that means rushing headlong into machine gun fire. But this time, Richvalsky did make a choice. While other 3rd Squad Marines rushed up to help Dutch, Richvalsky stayed glued to the dirt behind his gun. It may be one of the tougher things I've done, I guess, is not go. But... I didn't. Something fucking told me, don't fucking go over there. (laughs) Tactically, I made the right choice. Morally, maybe not. What could you have done differently if you had rushed up and gotten closer? Nothing. Clogged it up. Gotten in the way. Gotten in the way. Hit another IED. Gotten blown up. Again. Again, yeah. As we've been talking about all this, I can't help noticing how even-keeled Richvalsky is. And it isn't just the whiskey. Richvalsky was laid back and sang in, too. Like he was just rolling with the punches. Do you ever get angry? Do you ever... No, I don't. I do not have rage. I did a lot of thinking about it, I think, is, is what it was. You know, of whether I wanted to be pissed off about it or not. There's a short period of time... After I got blown up, after the 9th, after the 12th, brooded. That that brood took a long time. <laughs> more than more than most of my broods. But yeah, came up with no. No what? I don't have any hatred towards them. By them, Richvalsky means the Taliban. Like, fucking, it's, it's war, dude. It's just some guys killing each other. And it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's human nature. It's what it is. Dudes have been killing each other since the beginning of time. And we will continue killing each other till the end of time. (laughs) That's not going to change, man. You know? So there's no real grudge to be had, you know? This is pretty close to what Richvalsky told me back in Sangin. What do you think about about the Taliban? Why do you think they're fighting? What do you think their, their purpose is? I'm sure if I was fucking born in Afghanistan, I'd probably be Taliban. You know, (laughs) it's their deal. This is my deal. I remember being surprised by Richvalsky's sober view of the war back then. He didn't say anything about good guys or bad guys. Nothing about good or evil. He didn't hold himself or America's cause up to be morally superior. And after all these years, his outlook hasn't really changed. You know, I honestly believe they probably hated us more than I hated them. Because uh, I'd really fucking hate a guy <laughs> that was fucking landed on my property. Coming up into your village. Yep. yep, this is mine. You know? And yet, his lack of hatred for the enemy does not imply an abundance of sympathy. I would have gladly killed any race of people. For that, any religion, 
for that purpose of war at the time. If we were going anywhere else in the world, it wouldn't have mattered what the opposition was. All it is is opposition. The enemy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All that's all. That's all it would have ever been. You know, it didn't matter that they were Muslim. Didn't matter that they were, you know, brown. It didn't matter, man. That was the enemy at the time. It would be comforting to think that 17 and 18-year-olds enlist out of patriotism and a deep commitment to service. But in my experience, the U.S. military, especially the Marine Corps infantry, is chock full of rich Volskis. Young men looking for adventure, who want to fight and don't really care where the war is happening or why. Like Brian Shearer doing pull-ups in the recruiter's office when he was eight years old. Or John Bollinger, who just wanted to fight. Some guys have doubts farther down the road, once they've had a taste of the big suck. But not Rich Volsky. For him, the war happened, and now it's over. He proved himself in the ancient rite of combat, made some great friends, and now he's home. Time to move on. I asked Rich Volsky if he thinks it would help some of the other guys if they could learn to view their own war experiences dispassionately, the way he does. To let go of their hatred of the enemy, for example. I don't know, man. I don't know if that would help them. I do not know. I think some people, some people need a, there to be a, a demon there to justify their feelings and their actions. Huh. I just don't need that. I don't go to sleep at night and wonder if I'm a fucking good person or not. You know what I mean? I can look at myself and know that I'm a good person regardless of whether, you know, I did some killing or not. Richvalski tells me about one specific time in Sangin when he shot and killed a man on a roof. The way he remembers it, the guy was setting up to shoot at Brian Shearer. When you squeezed the trigger and took that life, did you feel like it was muscle memory? Like it was... No, doing your job or no it's fucking exhilarating it's good it really is you know because that motherfucker is about to kill sheer so yeah it's good and it's still good still good to this day i like sheer more than i like that motherfucker it would be easy to apply the word dehumanizing here Richvalski had dehumanized the enemy, and therefore, killing was easy. Richvalski himself had been dehumanized by the military before he even arrived in Sangin, and therefore, killing was easy, and so on. But it's only dehumanizing if you believe that the capacity to kill, for whatever reason, is alien to human nature, rather than part of what makes us human. What's interesting to me about you versus the other people I've talked to so far is... I think your willingness to say that you don't hold a grudge, your willingness to say, even back then, hey, if people like us showed up in my hometown, I'd be fighting them too. You were willing back then and are still willing now to say that your enemy was doing something that made sense to you. That your yeah. enemy was basically human. 100%. Yep. And yet you're also willing to say that you felt exhilarated 
when you neutralize the threat, when you got to do your job, when you got to fire your machine gun, particularly when you got to eliminate it's, the threat, uh, when you got to kill the person who was trying to kill you, that that felt good. It's primal, man. The surge of adrenaline that comes with that primal experience is intoxicating, and I know how addictive it can be. The feeling of being the hunter and the hunted in a place where life isn't precious and the future isn't guaranteed. And you feel more alive because you're always ready to die. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the decades since Rich Volsky came home from Sangin, he says he's cried exactly twice. He was hammered drunk both times and with other veterans, though not guys he served with. I ask him what brought on the tears. I just wish everybody would have come back. That would be what brings the sadness. Yep. And are there questions related to that? Uh... Like what? <laughs> I mean, example. Can you give me an example? <laughs> sure. Yeah. The simplest example would be: Why did I come back and they didn't? I do not have that question though, no. because uh, 
Life's a bitch, man. That's the way it works. So another question would be, and this is a question that a lot of your squad mates ask themselves is, could I have done something different? Yep, that That's also one that doesn't, doesn't get to me either. I accept my actions, man. So what, what would you say to guys who put that personal responsibility on themselves who are asking themselves that question? Could I have done something different? Or maybe if I had done this and not that so-and-so would be here. What would you say to people who are kind of tortured by that? Make peace with it, bud. <laughs> it ain't never going to fucking change. Richvalski is adding a new layer of meaning to the motto of the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. Make peace or die. Or maybe he's got a new motto altogether. Make peace and live your life. It's fucking 10 years later. If you're still blaming yourself, you better accept that it's your fucking fault at this point. You gotta move on with your life. That sounds fucking savage. I don't know how to fucking say that a better way. Well, don't you think it would be better for them to accept the other side of it, which is accept that it's not my fault? Just I, I do think that's better. 100%. You know, And that's the, the side of it that I think is the truth. But it's been a fucking while now. And I feel like if you're still on that one, I think you need to figure a way to live with yourself because you may not be able to change it at this point. So correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to... I don't want to say this the wrong way, but correct me if I'm wrong, that you've had an easier time making peace with things than some of your friends. I would say 100%. Yes. Okay. Do you ever wonder about why that is? Do you ever, or do you have any ideas about why that is? The, the only answer to that question that I can give you is when I saw the wizard, I only went to one once ever. And, uh, she said you had a good childhood essentially and uh, that's why you're all right so the if whether there's a truth behind that or not i don't know how anybody could ever know you know i don't know how a psychiatrist knows anything because in my opinion you uh can't be in anybody's brain I think your brain is your brain, and uh, I don't care how much science you throw at it. Fucking nobody's ever been in here but me. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So the wizard, this is a fun expression. Yeah. What, what does the wizard mean? It's the shrink, psychiatrist, you know. I remember being there. Uh, I feel like I just played, I played the game, <laughs> you know. Uh, like, uh, I felt like I knew the answers that she wanted, you know, and I just, I went with that, you know, and then she was like, all right, good to go. Richvalski and the rest of third squad had to go see the wizard after they got home from Sangin as part of a routine post-deployment health screening. What were the answers that you thought she wanted to hear? What were the questions? Oh, it was a lot about guilt. I mean, fuck, man, you could be a psychiatrist. Hey, you're talking to me about all the same bullshit she did. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> I swear to God. 
I believe you. This is it. Uh, it's not a very. It's not all that different when you get down to it. Yeah, yeah. This is it. This is what we fucking did, except for we're putting it on audio. Well, also, you're not telling me what you think I want to hear, are you? No. Good, because I don't want that. Like Michael Miner and Brian Shear, Richvalsky doesn't think the mental health profession has much to offer him. Do I think it's a bad thing? No. I think it's a good thing for people who need it. I just don't think I needed it, and I didn't want to get roped into a thing. I feel like I could have easily got prescribed some fucking weird brain drugs to fucking make my brain crazy. I didn't like it. Shrinks aren't the only people Richvalsky's skeptical of. Shit, I'm skeptical about you, bud. Tell me about that. Tell me about what, what your skepticism is. Because uh, you, weren't, you weren't skeptical of me when I was in Afghanistan. Yeah, I know. I was, uh, I was young and dumb. But you're skeptical of me now. Yes. I think uh, there's a lot of ways to twist everything that I've said in the last hour. And it uh, worries me that you're going to do that. Richvalsky's built a quiet life for himself up here in Alaska, and he wants to keep it that way. When I first got in touch with him, he told me I could come visit and that we could talk. But he said he didn't really want to be the story, and he didn't want to get too political. Now that I'm here, he tells me what he thinks I need to focus on. I don't think it's the killing that needs to be touched on. I don't think it's... uh why we got sent there that needs to be touched on. I don't think any of that fucking matters. The only part of this that would matter would be the the guys who didn't come back that didn't get to decide if they want to be fucked up or if they want to fucking build a house. I think that's the part of it needs to be touched on. I don't think... Well, I would be a very dishonest person if I told you that that's all I was going to touch on. Right. I would be lying to you. I know. I know because why you got sent there the sense that you all made of it at the time how you remember it the nitty gritty bad sad terrible things that happened the killing the aftermath what you've all done since all of that stuff Uh, is is the story right I think uh, a little uh, distrust on my end needs to go in there. Because I'm sure I'm not the only one. There's there's no fucking way. You know? I think you need to show that uh, it makes us feel weird to tell the story. It's not just that Rich Volsky's skeptical of how I'm going to tell his story. It's also that he doesn't really see the point. I don't want to offend you with my skepticism. You're not going to. Because <laughs> I like you, man. I like you. I don't want to be a fucking dick, but... You're not a dick. I'm just saying, I, I, what's going to fucking change, right? Maybe nothing. Probably nothing. Okay. But you know what will change if I don't do it? Definitely nothing. I doubt the 3rd Squad Marines were thinking about their historical legacy when they were in the thick of the fight in Sangin. They had more urgent concerns. But they are a part of history, and I think it's important to hear their stories. Richvalsky would just as soon close the book. 
and he's not tortured by his memories or his feelings about the war like some of the other guys. Why some people struggle more than others after a traumatic experience is one of the great unanswered questions. In Richvalsky's case, his TBI-induced memory problems might actually be a blessing. Like the fact that there isn't this very clear, organized set of memories that you right. go back to over and over and over. I'm wondering if that doesn't help you in a certain way. Sure does. Nothing is forced upon me repetitively by my own brain. Richvalsky's TBI symptoms are relatively mild, but not everyone is so lucky. TBIs can cause serious problems like amnesia, seizures, chronic fatigue, and increased risk of dementia, as well as a host of emotional issues like violent mood swings, anxiety, depression, and sexual dysfunction. TBI and PTSD often go hand in hand, and veterans with TBIs are more than twice as likely to commit suicide. World War I veterans who showed similar symptoms in the aftermath of artillery barrages were said to have shell shock, the signature injury of trench warfare. Almost a century later, TBIs emerged as the signature injury of the post-9-11 wars because of troops' frequent exposure to IED explosions. According to the Department of Defense, more than 400,000 U.S. service members experienced a TBI in the past two decades, including as many as one in every five Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Richvalsky has come to view his TBI as something that helps him more than it hurts him. And there may be other reasons why he seems so unburdened by the war. Like the wizard said, he might have bounced back because he had a good childhood and a supportive family. Or maybe it's just his laid-back Hawaiian side shining through his gruff Alaskan exterior. I've made peace, man. <laughs> you know? I, uh, I'm at peace with myself. I'm at peace with where I'm at in my life. I'm good. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. It's so much better of a drive when there's not anybody else. It's single digits and pitch black outside the next morning when Richvalsky and I climb into the cab of his pickup. I've got an early flight out of Anchorage, and he has to be at work by 7 a.m. On the drive, we keep our eyes peeled for moose. We swap hunting stories and talk about our mutual love for the wilderness the mountains, rivers, and wildlife that demand respect and deliver swift punishment to anyone who doesn't give it. You feel free, you know, no distractions, nobody around. You gotta rely on yourself. Being out there in those vast and unforgiving places is exhilarating, but nothing matches the high of being at war. Unfortunately, that high and its soul-shaping effect came at the steepest price. For us to have that primal experience that made us who we are, others had to die.
Next time on Third Squad, I'll be back in the lower 48, visiting Scott McKetchen in Kentucky. I got kicked to the curb because I made one poor choice after flawless service, I would say. When I got kicked out, I had no benefits or no direction or guideline or none of my friends I'd served with around me or in my life. I started selling cocaine. So, I mean, and I was going to school as well. But how the hell else am I going to pay for that? I'm back to square one. What did that feel like for you? Sucked. Felt like fucking defeat. I would describe it like the same way a guy feels when he walks in on his fucking wife laying in bed with another dude. It felt that shitty. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support for Third Squad comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. If you're interested in supporting our work, please visit the donate page at thirdsquad.com, where you'll also find photographs from Sangin and from our road trip. Original music for Third Squad by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.